Well, a special greeting to anybody who's visiting us this morning and also for our beloved church family members, many who are a little under the weather and are at home at this time. And uh, for all who are able to join us either by streaming or in presence, we're so thankful to the Lord that we can be together and celebrate His goodness and His, His grace this Christmas season. And it's getting close. And I know the gifts are building up and life is getting busy and this is the season. It's the season to be jolly, right? And uh, I was recently blessed with the gift of some coffee beans. That's one of the benefits, I guess, of Christmas time, right? And uh, as I got this bag of coffee beans, I did what I usually do, which is I looked very closely at the ingredients and squinted. I drive my wife nuts with this. Anything that comes into the home, I like to read what's in the packaging or, or what I'm imbibing. And uh, I noticed that this coffee company had printed an invitation on the back of the bag. And so it said, join our pilgrimage, seeking quality, truth, and accountability in coffee. Now, I'm really thankful for that gift. Let me just say that up front. But the history of pilgrimage is the history of a sacred and life-transforming journey in search of something holy. I don't know whether coffee quite ranks, but that's what the history of pilgrimage was, is that you would go on this sacred or spiritual journey with the hope and the expectation that you will find something that will transform your life. And a pilgrim is someone who leaves everything, home, country, family, to go on this sacred journey that transforms them into a wanderer and a seeker in search of some holy or religious experience. And in most religious traditions, Muslim, Hindu, and Christian pilgrims who have completed their pilgrimage, whether it's to get to Mecca or to Varanasi or Jerusalem or Rome, pilgrims who complete these pilgrimages become highly esteemed in their communities. They become set apart by what they have seen, what they've experienced, and what they've accomplished on their sacred journey. In Islam, they have a name. They call them the Hajis. And in America... And in Silicon Valley, pilgrimages have become what we do in the name of what we purchase and what we consume and what we conquer. Our coffee, our marathons, the expeditions and travels that we do around the world, the places we pay or the people we pay to help us to climb to the top of Mount Everest. This is what has become holy for us. And I would say, by extension, this pilgrimage experience that sold and reinvented and rebranded, it really has translated into just about every aspect of our lives. It's come into our areas of worship as well. And we have to ask ourselves, how often does ministry and church planting and mission tap into this idea of pilgrimage of going on some spiritual journey where we are going to be transformed by the journey, by what we see or what we experience or what we accomplish, or by the reward that awaits us at the end for the handful of people who climb the mountain. And I do think so much of Christendom, from the Crusades even to contemporary church planting, very much is fueled I would say by that legalistic and self-righteous desire to accomplish something for the Lord and to be validated for it. But as Ecclesiastes points out, there are no end of these pilgrimages and quests in our lives. Pilgrimages and quests to become great, to find something special, to do something monumental, to have an impact on the world. 
I can't tell you how many times I've heard people come to me and say, I want to have an impact for Christ. And the question in my mind is, but has Christ had an impact on you? And at the end of all of these things, in Ecclesiastes, the preacher makes the comment that all of these pilgrimages at the end of the day are vanity. Like a breath of warm air on a cold day. It's a mist that is here for a minute and it's gone tomorrow. And it seems startling and beautiful for the moment, but in a few seconds it's gone. Now, I want to add a caveat here. We've got two brothers who are starting a coffee ministry in the church. And I just want to tell you I'm all for it. I'm all for it as an expression of love and hospitality to extend to strangers who come in our midst and to wash feet and be kind and to give love and give the best to anybody who comes through the door as a means of showing the love of Christ, understanding that it points to something greater than that bean or that cup of coffee. But at Christmas time, I think it's important that we're mindful of our endeavors and our pursuits and what we aspire to and what we are trying to accomplish. And as we come back to the God-breathed words of Matthew 4 and 5, it's worth noting how Jesus' beatitudes bear witness to a very different kind of pilgrimage. And it's a pilgrimage that begins with Christ. And it begins with God's grace. And it begins with His love. It's not a reward or a whistle or a bell for the handful of people who complete the journey. And it begins with Christ entering our darkness and personally calling us to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it's with these God-breathed words that Jesus calls us to abandon our lives and our pilgrimages of vanity in exchange for His life and His pilgrimage of God's grace. A pilgrimage that is summed up with one word, blessed. Blessed because it is His life and it is His pilgrimage and it is His presence that brings us to something infinitely greater than a cup of coffee or the summit of Mount Everest. It's a life and a pilgrimage that brings us to the righteousness of God by way of the cross. The righteousness of God by way of the cross. Now that's no big deal in this day and age because the righteousness of God is not something that very many people highly esteem or think is worth sacrificing for or paying thousands of dollars in order to get a Sherpa guide to take you there. And yet we must come and say, this is what our Lord and Savior gave His life for. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. That Christ left everything, His place in glory, in order to come and be born in a manger, in a stinky place with animals, to be rejected, humiliated, reviled. For what purpose, brothers and sisters? To bring us to the righteousness of God. To make right what is not right in our lives, in our hearts, in our world. And he did that with incredible love. And it came at a great cost. This, brothers and sisters, is the pilgrimage that Jesus, through the Beatitudes, is showing us. And that he gives to all true children of God. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we'll read from verse 1 through 12. And we're coming to the very end, to the final beatitude, which is very much the summit or the pinnacle of the beatitudes and a summation of all the beatitudes that have come before. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. May I have my first slide, please? With the Beatitudes, Jesus shows his disciples and us the hallmarks of the gospel life. Not just for the elite, not just for the Mother Teresa's and St. Augustine's, the hallmarks of the gospel life for every child of God. The hallmarks of the gospel life he has come to live, the hallmarks of the life that he has come to give to sinners like you and I. And as Sinclair Ferguson points out, we don't get to pick and choose which beatitudes we like or we want. It comes as a whole. It's a summation of the Christian life. And each of the graces that are presented, they build upon one another. And they are meant to fill our lives. Brothers and sisters, our God is not stingy. He does not come and say, okay, well, you get mercy and you get righteousness and you get peace and I'm going to divvy it up. His desire as a child of God is that you would have the entirety of his life and his light and his love. And that, brothers and sisters, is the life of Christ. And this is what sets this life apart. It's God's grace and his righteousness, his unmerited favor. His heart of love in which he gives his children everything and all that he is. And it's his righteousness, what is right according to his word. Because he is a good and holy father and he would never give his children something that is not right or good. God's grace and his God's righteousness. This is what sets this life apart. And it is a life... That starts, as Jesus points out, here in this fallen world. With poverty of spirit and mourning over sin. But it ends with great joy and gladness and reward in Christ's kingdom. Jesus is showing us the pilgrimage of the Christian life. Excuse me. And this is where the grace and the righteousness of Christ's life brings us. He's showing us step by step by step how God's Grace and His righteousness in our life grows us and matures us and brings us step by step by step out of the darkness and into the light of His kingdom. But it brings us there, brothers and sisters, not before there is persecution for the sake of righteousness. It brings us there not before all righteousness is Fulfilled. And what is right before God is accomplished. And this brings us to our first point for this morning. To be right with God is to be wrong with the world. To be right with God is to be wrong with the world. Brothers and sisters, the good news of God's word, what we celebrate, especially at Christmas time, is that the one true God of the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is nothing like this dark and wicked world in which we live in. Praise God for that. Find your best leader. Find your best pastor. Praise God. He is different. Praise God. He is holy and He is righteous. Praise God. 1 John 1, five. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. 
And the good news of Christmas, brothers and sisters, is this God, Christ Jesus, came into our darkness to give us that holiness and to give us that righteousness and to give us that holy love and that goodness and grace. He came into our darkness to make us right with God. And as we learned last week, that's what peacemaking is. That's what to the call to repentance and reconciliation is. It's to be reconciled with God, to be made right with God. And the problem, brothers and sisters, is not only do we live in a world that is not right with God, we live in a world that does not want to be right with God. And that is because we live in a world that hates God. And I know that strong language. But we live in a world, the testimony of God's word, we live in a world that hates God. It hates all that God is. It hates all that God stands for. And it especially hates the light of God's grace and his righteousness and his holiness. And in no small part, because it convicts the world that it is not right with God. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And have a look at verse 19. And this, of course, follows that great verse that we know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then just a few verses down afterwards in John 3.19. Have a look. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Sweet verse for Christmas, right? What's the proof and the expression of our hate for God? It's a simple word that's called sin. Brothers and sisters, that's what sin is. It's not a whoops, it's not a mistake, it's not a slip up. Sin is an expression of our hate for God. It's our attempt to defile and destroy and remove the light of God and His Word in our lives, in our churches, and in our world. And brothers and sisters, this is the testimony of our work. This is the testimony of our technology. This is the testimony of our education and our entertainment. This is the testimony of our pornography and our politics. Where every effort is made to erase and replace the light of God's grace and righteousness. So that it no longer exists. Or what is there is the opposite of God's grace and His righteousness. And it's an attempt to replace the light of God's grace and righteousness with what? Our sinful desires our pride, our accomplishments, and our lies. Now, brothers and sisters, it's easy for us to admit these things in cases of war. It's very visible with Vladimir Putin and what's going on in the Ukraine. This opportunity to tear down flags and erase all the existence. And by extension, all the horrible things that go on, the rapes that are happening, the murderers and burying people in mass graves. It's this expression of hatred where you go in and you want to remove and erase and defile anything and everything that stands in the way of what you desire. And brothers and sisters, we live in a world of hate. 
And we live in a world of hate crimes. And it's gone so far, this hatred of God, where it's gone to the point where we hate anything that stands in the way of what we desire. And that becomes our hate crime. Because what we worship is what we desire. But brothers and sisters, it's just as true in our places of work, our careers, our education, and our entertainment. There's no room for God in those places, is there? Do I lie? Let's assume you're watching your favorite sports team. Let's assume it's game seven with the game on the line. Let's assume we're in the final two or three minutes with a two or three point differential. You're wearing your jersey and your hat. Pastor Mark calls you. Hey brother, can we talk about Jesus for a minute? You know, you just think, why does he have to call now? Can't this wait for five minutes? We talk about Jesus all the time, Pastor Mark. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, the testimony of God's word from Genesis 3 onwards is that we naturally in our flesh, all of us, me too, we naturally hate God because our hearts are naturally wicked. That's John three nineteen through 20. And because God's grace and His righteousness stands in the way of what we desire. And God's grace and His righteousness convicts us that we're not right with God. And God's grace and righteousness convicts us that we have absolutely no standing and nothing to boast in or nothing to pat ourselves on the shoulder and say, hey, good one. Great sermon, Pastor Mark. All we have to do is we have to look at the cross, brothers and sisters, and we begin to say, for all the greatness and all our righteousness, how much does it fall short? That everything we have is a gift of God's goodness and grace. What do we give that He has not given to us? What do we have that His mercy has not poured into our lives? There's no room for boasting, the Apostle Paul says. I'll boast only in the cross. And we see that God's grace and His righteousness takes all of that away, including the very things we want. And when we trace our idols at the end, how often do our idols lead us to a place where we're looking to be validated, that we're okay, we're right, we're good people. And sadly, brothers and sisters, this hate extends to anyone who reminds us of God, anyone who is like God, anyone who is right with God, Anyone who serves God. Anyone who is filled with God's righteousness and grace. If you have your Bibles, flip ahead a little bit and go to John 15, 18. John 15, 18. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. And what does he explain to his disciples? He says in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And brothers and sisters, what is the proof of this hatred? It's one word, persecution. And in Greek, this word for persecution refers to predatory pursuit. The predatory pursuit to hunt and humiliate. The predatory pursuit to crush and compromise. The predatory pursuit to dominate and defile. All of those things that really summarize what we in our day and age refer to as hate crimes. Now I want to make a distinction. Jesus here is talking about being persecuted because we're with him. Not because we stand in the way of someone's particular desire to conquer a nation or a country. But nonetheless, the attribute of hate and persecution 
is still the same because it comes from the wickedness of the human heart that seeks to not just remove but to humiliate and to compromise whatever stands in the way of what we want. That is persecution. And when you look at persecution, it's more than just giving someone a hard time. It's this idea of seeking out, of actually digging down deep, of going like a heat-seeking missile after something that really bothers you and annoys you. Think of Paul going in Acts and seeking out and going to other towns outside of Jerusalem to try and dig up Christians because they really annoyed him and offended him and to bring them back and to incarcerate them and to put them in prison, to threaten them with death, but ultimately to try and get them to compromise. And then we go through Scripture and you see it's all through Scripture that those who stand for the Lord or belong to the Lord or serve the Lord or love the Lord, get pursued, dug out, chased down, and pressed. That idea of persecution is pressing, of pursuing and pressing, and squeezed in an attempt to either compromise this person or crush this person. Think of Cain killing Abel because he did not like The fact that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. Think of Joseph's brothers. Assaulting Joseph and throwing him into a pit. Tearing that beautiful cloak that the father had given him. And ultimately selling him into slavery. Think of King Saul's persecution of David. Not merely throwing a spear, but spending most of his latter part of his kingly career pursuing and chasing David and trying to root him out of caves. But as we go through scripture, brothers and sisters, there is one hate crime that trumps all of them. And that, of course, is the cross. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Christ's blessed life leads us to the cross. Christ's blessed life leads us to the cross. Brothers and sisters, why did Jesus come into this world as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem? Why did he come to a place of incredible humility, of poverty, one might even argue shame, Well, Jesus himself gives the reason to John the Baptist at his baptism in Matthew 3.15. In love, Jesus came, as he shares with John the Baptist, to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all that is right before God according to his word. Why did Jesus do that, brothers and sisters? He was without sin. He was holy. He was one with the Father. He was good to go. Why did he come into this dark, broken world where everything's so messed up to, against all adversity and all pushback to fulfill all righteousness, all that is right before God? He did it, brothers and sisters, on behalf of a people who are not right with God. He did it in love for a people who were not righteous. And this, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. According to Romans, this is the power of the gospel. This is what changes lives. This is what delivers sinners from hell. This is what cleans us. This is what washes us. This is what transforms our minds and our hearts and our lives and sets us free from the bondage of sin. The righteousness of Christ. Christ fulfilling all righteousness for you and for me. And this, brothers and sisters, is the assurance of salvation for the greatest of sinners, whether it be the Apostle Paul or whoever else, where they're able to stand and say, I have done horrible things, I am a horrible person, I fall short of the glory of God. 
But my righteousness and my perfection is not found in me. It is found in Christ, my advocate, who stands before me, who is my Lord and Savior by faith. And he is all that I have, and he is the only thing of worth in my life. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Righteousness, brothers and sisters, is costly. Righteousness, brothers and sisters, is of infinite worth. And the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, and the good news of Christmas is that Christ came to give his righteous life in exchange for our unrighteous lives. And to give his righteous pilgrimage in exchange for all our unrighteous pilgrimages, wherever they've been, past or present. And of course, here's the rub. To receive that life by faith, we must let go of that life of unrighteousness. And we must let go of those pilgrimages of unrighteousness so that we can walk with Christ and so that we can be with Him. And this, brothers and sisters, is the price of redemption. And this is the price of salvation according to God's Word. It is the blessing of a righteous life in exchange for what is unrighteous. And from the moment Christ Jesus arrives in the world, this is His purpose. He talks about it repeatedly. I have come to do the work of the Father. I have come to fulfill the word of God. I haven't come for myself. And I don't act on my behalf and I don't speak on my behalf. I speak the words that the Father has given me. I do the work that the Father has called me to do. I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. To save my people from their sins. And what is the world's response to this gift of life? that is affirmed by Scripture and signs and wonders and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. What's the world's response to this gift of righteousness and this gift of God's grace? Rejection, persecution, slander, and shame. First by King Herod, then by the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the Jews, and finally by the greatest political power of the times, Rome. And so you've got everybody covered. Nobody's left out. As far as rejecting, persecuting, and slandering and reviling this gift of righteousness. And it's worth noting, brothers and sisters, had Jesus been willing to compromise the gospel, had he been willing to compromise the righteousness of God just a little bit, you can just call me rabbi. That's okay. You can just call me a prophet. That's okay. Pharisees and Sadducees, you're mostly right. You're just a little wrong, but you're mostly right. Pretty good. B plus. Good enough for God. That's all Jesus had to do, and his life would have been easy street. He would have been acclaimed. People would have written books about him. He would have had a huge fan club. He would have done great. But brothers and sisters, what would have been lost? Your righteousness and mine. And for that, our Lord and Savior was unwilling to compromise. We had some Jehovah's Witness come by and try and hit up the house yesterday. I'd left to take a sermon break to get my head clear and these guys are coming for the house. Julie and the kids are at home like, hey buddy, don't go there, man. Speak to me right out here. Save my wife that grief. And after the beginning, when it cut to the chase, it came to be about Jesus, right? I mean, first they try and love you and come out, watchtower and all that. Cultish love bombing. And when that doesn't work and it's like, hey, and then it's about Jesus. Well, 
Then they opened up the scripture and they went to John 17 and tried to take a verse out of context. And where do they go? That he is not God. We worship Jehovah. And what a damnable offense that is heartbreaking and that blinds and drags people to hell. Because if it wasn't the Son of God who was perfectly righteous, true God, true man, who died on the cross, our salvation is absolutely worthless. Because the only righteousness that is pleasing to a holy and righteous God is complete and perfect righteousness, brothers and sisters. Now we see that clearly with the cults, but how about in our churches, in our ministries, in our families? It's easy to compromise, isn't it? And our lives are so much easier when we bend it just a little bit. And yet, the Apostle Paul, when he labors and he says, why am I persecuted for the way I am? He talks about this idea because he stood firm that you could not add circumcision to the gospel. A work of the law to the gospel. That's all that the Apostle Paul had to do and Judaism and the leaders of the Jews would have been fine and Paul would have been off the hook. No lashes, no imprisonment, no going to Caesar, no getting your head cut off. All he had to do was say the gospel is good plus a little bit of this. A little bit of your righteousness plus a lot of Jesus' righteousness is the Roman Catholic Church. But nonetheless, that's most of the religions too. A little bit of righteousness plus a lot of God, you're good to go. But brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't come to make sinners feel better about themselves. He did not come to give sinners a better life. He came to save us from our sins. And He came to give us a completely new life. He came to make us right with God. Christ Jesus came. To fulfill all righteousness for you and I. And brothers and sisters, this is what the Beatitudes are all about. And this is the blessing that Jesus is talking about. Because as he walks through the Beatitudes from beginning to end. From poverty of spirit to mourning over sin to meekness. To hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Each one as he walks through is an aspect of God's grace that is pleasing to the Lord. It's a part of the complete picture of where the Lord is taking us to draw us near to him and to bring us out of the darkness. And as we come back to the Beatitudes, brothers and sisters, it's worth noting the Beatitudes that precede verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What are the Beatitudes that come before that? Poverty of spirit, mourning and grieving over sin, meekness, a humble dependence entirely on the grace of God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, Being a peacemaker, where a peacemaker is one who calls sinners to repentance and to be reconciled with God. Brothers and sisters, this is the framework of righteousness that leads right into verse 10. Blessed are those, and it's literally, who have been persecuted. Charles Barkley would say, guarantee, right? Except he's always wrong and our Lord is right. It means it's guaranteed. If the spirit of the Lord is in you and you're growing in him and you're shining that light and your life is filled increasingly with his grace and his truth. Blessed are those who have been persecuted on account of, not the way you look, not because you're tall or short or chubby or you're different or you're Asian, on account of 
righteousness, what is right with God. And what is right with God is the gospel life. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Those come secondary. But it's what is right before God. And what is right before God, it's everything that Jesus has just described in the Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit, being heartbroken over sin, being merciful to others, hungering and thirsting for what is right before God. Being able to put things on the line to reconcile others regardless of the cost, to say you're not right with God. Be reconciled with Him. Christ can give you the life that you do not have. And brothers and sisters, the more we walk with Christ, the more we become like Christ, the more we share and shine His light, the more those who hate God will hate and persecute us. They'll come looking for you. They'll come looking for you. Especially, this is true, of the self-righteous haters in the church. Because the ones who gave Jesus the most heat and who set the whole thing up were the people who believed they were righteous because of all the things they had done and accomplished, including their pilgrimages to Jerusalem. When I was at that big church, which will remain unnamed, I'd go to a men's Bible study, drive around 45 minutes to get out there to Santa Clarita with these guys. And they were the sweetest guys on the face of the earth. This is with Dr. Street and Joy Ayers. They were all the older men. And they would get up and they would have this Bible study Saturday morning at 6.30, which means you had to get up, where, depending on where you live, drive out. And they were the sweetest, nicest, godliest men on the face of the earth, really. And what blew my mind as a young man as we gathered together to pray for one another is how these men, who were the kindest, gentlest, sweetest guys on the face of the earth, when they shared what they prayed for prayer requests, was how many of them were being attacked in their place of work. And I walked out speaking to a young man who I had drove, driven up with and I was just shocked because it was like boom, 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 boom and it was all happening of these men just having all manner of ugliness come out of the woodworks for them. And it made no sense to me. Who would want to be unkind to these guys? They're the nicest guys. I mean, these are men who would, who would literally give you the shirt off their back until we come to God's word. And you realize that these men were mature saints, where the grace of Christ was clearly visible in so many different areas. And in their place of work, they had become the objects of offense and resentment from their co-workers, who were probably leading all manner of different types of lives, including religious lives, and were shamed and felt guilty and were convicted and said, hey, get this out of my way. And I'm going to put as much pressure and I'm going to put as much squeeze until these guys are gone and out of the workplace. And yet, what's the good news of God's word, brothers and sisters? Well, it's the good news of the cross, is it not? Even as the light of Christ's righteousness and grace exposes the reality of what is not good, even as that light shines brighter and brighter, it gives us only two responses. We either are going to repent or we are going to hate and persecute. It's one or the other. And it raises the question sometimes, brothers and sisters, why are we as Christians in the West not persecuted? And maybe the simple answer is in our work, in our worship, in our lives and in our neighborhoods, perhaps we're more like the world than we care to admit. But Jesus in Matthew 16, 24 says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
And then the Apostle Paul has to remind Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says to Timothy, who's struggling, and he's struggling in the church as the Judaizers are pounding on him, right? As well as all the other people who want all the other whistles and bells. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But we have a gracious Lord and Savior who loves us and understands the weakness of our frame and that we are just us. And Matthew 5.11, he reminds the disciples, he says, Blessed are you whenever others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And he walks them through all the ways in which people come after righteousness. It's not just giving you a hard time. They are there to change the narrative. Revile means to shame and to put down. Persecute to pursue and press and squeeze for compromise, if not to destroy. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. To say all manner of, in the Greek, lies. And of course, this is what happens to Jesus, right? And this is what he endures for you and I. And Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. Because you are with me, you are like me and you're serving me. And in verse 12, Jesus explains why such people are blessed. And it's nothing that the world gets excited about. He says, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this brings us to our final point this morning. Christ's cross brings the blessing and joy and gladness of Christ's life. Christ's cross brings the blessing, joy, and gladness of Christ's life. The irony of the cross, brothers and sisters, is what men meant for evil, God used for good. And it's by the cross, brothers and sisters, not by politics, not by legislation, not by technology, not by wealth, not by entertainment, not by a better worship program that Christ Jesus shows us what True love is. And it's by the cross that Christ Jesus shows us what true righteousness is. It's not a seminary degree, brothers and sisters. It is the cross. And it's by the cross Jesus shows us what true grace is. And what true mercy is. And what true life is. A life that is pleasing to God. A life that is greater than sin and death and hatred of this world. A life that overcomes evil with good. A life that gives rather than takes. And affirms that God is infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, infinitely good. And far greater than the worst that this world has to offer. And brothers and sisters, when we are persecuted for what is right according to God's word, when we're persecuted for what we read about in the Beatitudes, when we are persecuted for the name of Christ and for the gospel, for calling sinners to repent and to be reconciled with God, brothers and sisters, this is the life that is revealed in us and through us as frail and as broken as we are. And this is the light that is shared with the world. And so Jesus gives a command, non-optional. He says, rejoice and be glad. It's a command because, you know, we struggle with that. But he's pointing out what sometimes is hard to see when we are suffering for the sake of righteousness. He says, for your reward is great in heaven. And he's not talking about having a big mansion of gold and the big gold Rolls Royce up in heaven. He's talking here about God's affirmation. That's what reward is about. It's not something we earn. And it's not the pleasure and delight of gaining something special that other people don't have. It's the idea, this idea of great reward is God's pleasure, His delight, His affirmation, His visible demonstration. This is good. This is right. 
And the point here is that God's affirmation and his pleasure and delight is far greater than the insults and ugliness of the world. I have a broken illustration for you. I told you that during my years at that church, which will me remain unnamed, I was single and I couldn't give myself away. I had the mark of Cain on me. And the leaders there loved me and were kind to me and they couldn't understand why this rejection. Anyways, they would graciously try and set me up on any number of meetups that ended up being incrementally more humiliating one after the other. But I loved them. They were my leaders. I knew they were trying to be kind, so I wanted to honor them. So it was this path of pain. Nonetheless, when my single years came to an end and God was gracious enough to give me Julie, she's asked me often, do you remember your single years? And I say, really, I don't. And the humiliation and all of those things, they become irrelevant. And in fact, there's a perspective because I understand now that those were preparations and those were ways in which the Lord refined me or grew me or prepared me or brought me to the place for where he meant me to be by his grace and mercy. Now that's a really broken illustration, brothers and sisters. But the point that Jesus is making is that one day you will see as the Lord brings you through what is difficult and hard for the name of Christ. He's going to bring you to a place where you see that God's love and his joy and his delight and his affirmation and his blessing on his children is so much greater that those insults and injuries and for Jesus, even the cross... And the ugliness of it will be far outweighed by the joy as he gathers together his children who he has made right and delivered from darkness and sin. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The prophets were the spokesmen of God. The prophets were the apostles in the Old Testament. The prophets were those who spoke the word of God, who were set apart by God, who called Israel to place their trust in God and to turn and be delivered from the judgment that was to come. And because of that, they were hated. Hated by the world, but beloved by the Lord. And cherished by the people of God afterwards as they looked back and said, your suffering prepared us for the coming of the king. Your suffering prepared us for the coming of the king. Brothers and sisters, when we are uncompromising for the sake of our love for Christ, to live by his mercy and grace and truth, and we take a hit for that, however big or small, with our roommates, with our family members, with difficult people during Christmas, with the neighbors, wherever it may be, are we aware of the company we keep and how God is using that to prepare people today and who come after for the coming of the King. Well, Jesus says, such people are sons of God, children of the kingdom, for such will inherit the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, the recent estimates are that 70 million Christians have been martyred during the history of the church. Of those 70 million, 45 million, two-thirds were martyred during the 20th century. More in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. And to these, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And no one struggled with suffering in the cross more than Peter did. And as you read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you see how beautifully Christ has transformed his heart and the encouragement he was able to give to others 
to the struggles of his own faith as he struggled with the cross and persecution. Before I close, there's a couple of points I want to make. There has been a trend in America over the last five years, maybe even longer, to portray struggles and fights for Christian rights and freedoms as being persecuted for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful. When we talk about giving up rights or suffering because we can't do the things we want to do, or what we're used to here in America. And we come to scripture. And we see the suffering of the saints. For the sake and the name of Christ. It's something very different. And when we do that. Which is a very American thing to do. Oh I went to prison because. Or I did this because. We belittle what Christ has done. Because when he came at Christmas. As a baby born in a place where there was no room for him, and he was placed in the manger, he relinquished his rights, and he relinquished his freedoms, and he relinquished everything he was entitled to, to fulfill all righteousness, so that you and I could be free in Christ. Secondly, The sweet thing about Jesus is he takes us step by step. I know this is scary stuff. But what Jesus does call us to do is to trust in him. And he says to his disciples the night before he's crucified, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And the place it begins, brothers and sisters, is really with confidence and courage. Placing our lives in Christ's care and trusting in his goodness and his love that he will not give us more than we can bear. It might feel like it's more than we can bear, but he will not give us more than we can bear. And that when we suffer for the name of Christ, we do not suffer alone. Christ is walking with us and he is suffering with us. This is why he tells the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? Because as the Apostle Paul did that to those Christians, and Christ's Spirit was there with him, Paul was persecuting Christ himself, that we do not suffer alone. And brothers and sisters, this is what separates suffering, because in this world you're going to suffer. You will. It's a hateful world, there's persecution, terrible things happen. But when it's for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the love of Christ, and because we stand with him, what separates us, is that we're suffering with Christ and we're suffering for Christ and what takes care of us and what protects us and what watches us and what sustains us is Christ himself. Lastly, I think one of the biggest areas that we struggle with suffering for the sake of the gospel, brothers and sisters, comes early. It doesn't happen overnight. Be faithful in the small things. And for Asians living in Silicon Valley, among some of the greatest pressures to compromise is the pressure to be desirable according to the world's standards. How can I be desirable in the way I dress? How can I be desirable in who I date? How can I be desirable in the career I have? And you all get pressure, as we all have, from family members and others who are pseudo-believers who just think that if you did A, B, C, D, and E, you would be more desirable and more successful. There's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with having a good job. There's nothing wrong with dressing nicely. But brothers and sisters, when it comes at the expense of your relationship with Christ, and what becomes important is being desirable according to the world's standards, What does that say about the gospel we stand for? And how does that spread to our families, our worship, our church, and our programs? Where suddenly it all becomes about the gospel plus A, B, C, D, or E. And in doing so, brothers and sisters, we begin to chip away at the beauty and the grace and the goodness of what Christ has come to give you. His righteousness, not ours. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, what you have given to save us, 
when we confess, and I do, Lord, when we are even made to be uncomfortable for the name of the gospel, we struggle and we see how much our faith is lacking. But Lord Jesus, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in a Savior who came and suffered on our behalf to fulfill all the righteousness that we so desperately need. May you be our source of celebration this Christmas. And Lord Jesus, would you be with the saints around the world, so many who are suffering, even as we speak, for your name and on account of you. In your name we pray, amen.